Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Even though conspiracy theorists always talk about the elites, the elites, they're after you, the people who conspiracy theories benefit most are the elites, <laughs> because it deflects attention away from the system that has made them billionaires. And it says, no, it's not the system. It's just those three guys. We just have to get those three guys. Today, Naomi Klein for the hour on Doppelganger, a trip into the mirror world. In her new book, Naomi Klein delves deeply into the culture of conspiracy theories and the growing alliance between the far right and people who once identified as part of the left, including Naomi Wolf, now embraced by Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon. Naomi Klein describes Naomi Wolf as her doppelganger learned by shadowing my double is that the forces that have destabilized my personal world are part of a much larger web of forces that are destabilizing our shared world. And understanding these forces may be our best hope of getting to firmer ground. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Libya, the mayor of the eastern port city of Derna says up to 20,000 people have been killed by Sunday's catastrophic floods, which were triggered by the collapse of two dams amidst unprecedented rainfall. Libyan officials say the true toll may never be known after floodwaters washed whole neighborhoods into the sea. On Tuesday, Libya's prime minister dismissed the need for international aid, though he said Libya does not need help locate—does need help locating the bodies of victims who were swept into the Mediterranean. We do not need aid, not even medication or equipment, nor doctors or ambulances. Thanks to God, we have 400 ambulances that took off. But we have a problem in retrieving the bodies from the sea. Rescue workers warned of the potential spread of disease and appealed for more body bags. Many of Derna's flood victims are being buried in mass graves. On Wednesday, U.N. Human Rights Chief Volker Turk called on Libya's two rival governments to set aside their differences in order to coordinate relief efforts. I call on all Libyan political actors to overcome deadlocks and divisions and to act collectively in ensuring access to relief. This is a time for unity of purpose. All those affected must receive support without regard for any affiliations. 
The catastrophic flooding in Libya came as a new study found Earth's ecosystems are outside of their safe operating space for humanity. The report in the journal Science Advances warns of imbalances to a majority of key measurements of the planet's health, including biodiversity, fresh water, pollution and the climate. Climate scientist Johan Rockström co-authored the report. Six of the nine boundaries are outside of their safe space. The four boundaries that we uh, assessed in 2015 are deeper into the red, so we're continuing to move in the wrong direction. And this is a big concern. Close to 800 organizations have endorsed climate actions beginning Friday, culminating in a march to end fossil fuel Sunday here in New York at the United Nations. In Morocco, search and recovery teams say they're frustrated that the government rejected offers of foreign aid as the death toll from last week's devastating earthquake nears 3,000. This week, French President Emmanuel Macron sent a message to the Moroccan people that King Mohammed VI had rejected an offer by France to provide direct humanitarian aid. So far, Morocco has only provided access to aid workers from Spain, the United Arab Emirates, the UK, and Qatar. Many survivors in remote villages have been sleeping outdoors since the earthquake struck. We don't know where we're going to go, what we're going to do, where we're going to live. You know winter is coming, the rain. You know winter conditions, rain. We have young children, we have nothing. The United Nations Special Envoy to Sudan says he's stepping down from the role three months after Sudan's military junta declared him persona non grata, something that's not allowed under the U.N. Charter. Volker Perthes just testified to the U.N. Security Council Monday. At least 5,000 people have been killed since the start of the conflict and over 12,000 injured. And these are conservative figures. The actual number is likely much higher. What started as a conflict between two military formations could be morphing into a full-scale civil war. Some 20 million people in Sudan, nearly half the population, face acute food insecurity. Six million are just one step away from famine. On Monday, leaders of over 50 international human rights and humanitarian groups accused global leaders of failing to take action in the face of atrocities in Sudan. Ukraine's intelligence service says Ukrainian forces successfully launched their largest attack yet on the Russian Navy's Black Sea fleet. On Wednesday morning, Ukrainian bombers equipped with British and French-made cruise missiles struck a dry dock in the Crimean city of Sevastopol, destroying a Russian amphibious ship and a submarine. Elsewhere, Russia's military said its air defense units thwarted a drone attack over Crimea, while Ukraine claimed to have shot down 17 out of 22 Russian drones launched at targets in southern Ukraine. Here in the United States, a Senate investigation subcommittee has issued a subpoena for documents on Saudi Arabia's $700 billion sovereign wealth fund and its investments in the U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal is probing a proposed merger between the Saudi fund and the PGA Live Golf Tour. During a hearing Wednesday, Blumenthal and other lawmakers raised Saudi human rights abuses and links between Saudi leaders and the 9-11 attacks. This week marks 22 years since those horrific attacks. Not only did 15 of the 19 hijackers come from Saudi Arabia, but in the years since, 
evidence have come to light, compelling and mounting evidence, revealing that the Saudi government may have known or knowingly aided some of these hijackers. Over the weekend, President Biden shook hands with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the G20 summit two days before the U.S. commemorated the 9-11 attacks. While campaigning for President Biden, vowed to make MBS a pariah over the assassination of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi and human rights issues. Hurricane and tropical storm watches have been issued for much of coastal New England and eastern Canada ahead of the arrival of Hurricane Lee this weekend. The storm, now a Category 2 hurricane, is expected to widen as it crashes into eastern Maine, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia Saturday, bringing damaging winds and a storm surge that will coincide with spring tides. Members of the United Auto Workers are gearing up for the first-ever simultaneous strikes against the Detroit Three car manufacturers. UAW President Sean Fein issued a warning to automakers Wednesday ahead of tonight's midnight contract expiration. The big three can afford to immediately give us our fair share. If they choose not to, then they're choosing to strike themselves. And we are not afraid to take action. The strike action would see workers suddenly walk out of targeted plants while others continue to work in a bid to, quote, create confusion. Fain also said the strikes could escalate to an across-the-board work stoppage by all 150,000 UAW members if talks do not progress. Auto workers are seeking a 40 percent pay increase, 32-hour work week, return to regular pensions, an end to compensation tiers, and cost-of-living adjustments, among other demands. So far, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which owns Chrysler and other brands, have offered pay raises between 17.5 and 20 percent. Senator Bernie Sanders has called on the U.S. public to support the UAW to help, quote, create an economy that works for all, not just the privileged few, unquote. Sanders notes the CEOs of the big three have seen their pay increase by more than 40 percent over the past four years, earning between 20 and 30 million dollars each last year alone. The three companies made 23 billion dollars in profits in the first half of this year, an 80 percent increase over last year. In Texas, a federal judge again declared DACA, that's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, unlawful, blocking an attempt by the Biden administration to codify DACA into a federal regulation. It's the second such ruling by conservative judge Andrew Hanen, a George W. Bush appointee. DACA will remain in place for some 580,000 recipients and continue to issue renewals, but will not process first-time applications. The decision prompted calls for the Biden administration to prioritize immigration reform and provide a pathway to citizenship for immigrants living in the United States. The New York Legal Assistance Group, known as NILAG, called the ruling inhumane and shameful and said, quote, it's unconscionable that our judicial system is placing thousands of people back into the shadows of this dysfunctional, harmful immigration system, unquote. The case is expected to end up in the Supreme Court. The International Organization for Migration has found the U.S.-Mexico border to be the world's deadliest land migration route. The International Organization for Migration documented the deaths and disappearances of 686 migrants on the U.S.-Mexico border in 2022, making it the deadliest land route 
for migrants worldwide last year. The figure represents nearly half of the 1,457 migrant deaths and disappearances recorded throughout the Americas last year, the deadliest on record since the Missing Migrants Project began in 2014. The UN agency said the true toll is likely to be much higher. Half the recorded deaths near the border are linked to the Sonoran and Chihuahuan deserts. The IOM called on governments to urgently create regular legal migration pathways to prevent further unnecessary tragedy. In Wisconsin, Republican leaders are moving ahead with plans to impeach newly elected liberal state Supreme Court Justice Janet Persaowicz whose landslide election victory in April gave progressives control of the court for the first time in 15 years. With her election, the court is now expected to restore abortion rights in Wisconsin and could overturn legislative and congressional district maps gerrymandered by Republicans. On Monday, Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss announced the creation of a panel to investigate whether to impeach Podesiewicz after she called the current maps unfair and rigged during her campaign. In a statement, the ACLU said, quote, the attacks on democracy happening in Wisconsin should raise alarm bells for Americans everywhere. Across the country, we're seeing increasingly authoritarian tactics being used to disenfranchise voters and delegitimize the electoral process from baselessly ousting elected officials to election denialism to passing restrictions that make it harder to vote, the ACLU said. And Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney said Wednesday he will not seek re-election in 2024, saying it's time for a new generation of leaders. The one-time Republican presidential nominee is one of the few members of the Republican Party to speak out against Donald Trump and was the only Republican to vote to convict Trump in both of his impeachment trials. He spoke to reporters after announcing his decision not to run for a second term. Well, there's no question, but that the Republican Party today is is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, he is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, it's a populist, I believe, demagogue portion of the party. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, Naomi Klein on Doppelganger, a trip into the mirror world. Stay with us.
vision by Foreigner. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Today, we make a trip into the mirror world. The acclaimed writer Naomi Klein has a new book out this week that delves deeply into the culture of conspiracy theories and a growing alliance between the far right and people who once identified as progressive. The book comes as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. campaigns against Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination for president. Kennedy, who was once a prominent environmental lawyer, is now a leading figure in the anti-vaccine movement. In July, Kennedy made headlines after claiming, quote, COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. He went on to say Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese are most immune to COVID. One notable defender of Kennedy's claims was the writer Naomi Wolf, who's best known for her 1991 book, The Beauty Myth. In a Substack post, Wolf defended Kennedy, writing, quote, RFK Jr. is cursed and blessed with a passion for actual truth, she wrote. Kennedy and Wolf have both been embraced by the far right. Republican mega-donors are helping to bankroll Kennedy's long-shot presidential campaign, while Wolf is now a regular guest on Steve Bannon's podcast, The War Room, where she spreads conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines and other issues. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson has also praised Naomi Wolf, saying she is, quote, one of the bravest, clearest thinking people I know. Well, Naomi Wolf plays a central role in Naomi Klein's new book titled Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Klein examines how and why more and more people started confusing her with Wolf as Naomi Wolf fell deeper into what Naomi Klein called the mirror world where facts no longer matter. Naomi Klein writes in the book, quote, the trouble with the mirror world there is always some truth mixed in with the lies, always some devastating collective failure it's identified and is opportunistically exploiting, unquote. In a moment, Naomi Klein will join us live. But first, we play a short video produced along with the book. Hi, I'm Naomi Klein. And as some of you know, I have a doppelganger a person who does many extreme things that cause strangers to chastise me or thank me or express their pity for me. I used to be horrified by this, but then something happened that I didn't expect. I got interested, interested in what it means to have a doppelganger. So I decided to follow my doppelganger to a place I've come to think of as the mirror world. It's a strange mirror image of the world where I live. It's a place where many ideas that I care about are being twisted and warped into dangerous doppelganger versions of themselves. When I look at the mirror world, I don't see disagreements over a shared reality. I see disagreements about what is real and what is a simulation. And with AI generating more and more of what we see and hear, it's only getting harder to distinguish the authentic from the synthetic. 
After all, artificial intelligence is a mirroring and mimicry machine. We feed in the cumulative words, ideas, and images that our species has managed to create. And these programs mirror back to us something that feels uncannily lifelike. But it's not life. It's a forgery of life. I shadowed my double further into the mirror world, a place where soft-focused wellness influencers make common cause with fire-breathing far-right propagandists, all in the name of saving and protecting the children. Not everyone is dogged by their doppelganger, but our culture is crowded with all kinds of doubling. All of us who maintain a persona or avatar online are kind of creating our own doppelgangers forging a separate public identity that is both us and not us. A doppelganger, we perform for one another as the price of admission in a rapacious attention economy. And all the while, tech companies create digital profiles of us without our full knowledge. Data doubles, or golems, that follow us everywhere we go online, carrying their own agenda, their own logics, and their own threats. What is all of this doubling and doppelganging doing to us? How is it steering what we pay attention to, and more critically, what we neglect and ignore? Doppelgangers are often understood as a warning or an omen, a message that something needs our attention. Reality is doubling, multiplying, glitching, telling us to pay attention. Because it's not just individuals who can flip into a sinister version of themselves. The Earth can transform into a menacing, uncanny twin of what we once knew. Whole societies can flip. That's the reason many doppelganger works of art are ultimately about the latent potential for fascism within our societies, even within ourselves. What I've learned by shadowing my double is that the forces that have destabilized my personal world are part of a much larger web of forces that are destabilizing our shared world. And understanding these forces may be our best hope of getting to firmer ground. That video featured Naomi Klein, author of the new book Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Naomi Klein is an award-winning author and journalist. She's professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia, founding co-director of the UBC Center for Climate Justice. Her previous books include On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. This changes everything, capitalism versus the climate. No logo, taking aim at the brand bullies. Naomi is also a columnist for The Guardian. She's joining us now from Washington, D.C., as she begins her book tour around the country. Naomi, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you Thank with you. us. And congratulations Thank you on, so the, much, Amy. on the publication of this book. I like what the great artist and uh, author Molly Crabapple said about your book, a dazzling hallucinatory tour de force that takes the reader through shadow selves and global fascism, leaving them gasping by the end. So, Naomi, if you can explain more this journey you took uh, through the pandemic uh, into this mirror world, um, 
who your doppelganger is, and then go back to, to 2011 and that moment in the loo where you um, talk about uh, hearing women talk about you, or was it Naomi Wolf? Take it from there. All right. Well, first, first of all, Amy uh, and Armin, thank you so much for having me back on the show. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and thank you for, for airing that video. I just want to credit the director, Colby Richardson, who's an amazing video artist. So those of you who are listening just to the audio, I really encourage you to, to watch the, to watch the video version because it gets really trippy. Um, Amy, you listed some of my previous books in that in that uh, lovely introduction. Uh, my books, Back to No Logo, my first book, which I wrote on the cusp of the of the new millennium, almost a quarter of a century ago, um, have been attempts to map uh, our political moment. They've they've been attempts to to make sense of, of moments of big shifts uh, in our political world, our cultural world. Um, and, uh, and, and in the case of, of This Changes Everything, our, our physical world. Um, and I would say that Doppelganger is an attempt to make, uh, to, to make a, a usable map of, of our moment. The thing is, our moment is a lot weirder and wilder uh, than any I've ever lived through. Uh, there are all kinds of strange happenings at work, all kinds of uncanny events. So I thought in many ways that I needed to write in a different way, a way that sort of mirrored the wildness of now. Uh, and so, you know, I let myself have more fun with the writing. I, I, uh, I wanted to refine a voice that, uh, that felt more like me, that felt more like the person who talks to their friends, that was more conversational. But also, Amy, you know, um, you know, this project began during the pandemic, and um, I've written about large-scale collective shocks. That's what the shock doctrine was about. But I realized that in the past, you know, if I was covering Hurricane Katrina or the U.S. and U.K. invasion and occupation of, of Iraq uh, or the Asian tsunami, I mean, these, these huge cataclysmic events— I was, you know, I think as as you are, right? Uh, the journalist who comes in with 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 a notepad, maybe a camera, um, and 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 I'm interviewing other people about their shock. Um, but really, I have this. Re I've had uh, a reportorial distance. COVID was different. Nobody was outside of that shock. Um, it upended my world as it upended all of our worlds. And in many ways, the world became uncanny and unfamiliar. Freud described uh, the uncanny as that species of frightening in which that which was familiar becomes strange. I mean, think about Times Square uh, during the pandemic. Uh, that is an uncanny apparition. Uh, it, it, it's something familiar that looks completely different. It's empty, uh, one of the busiest places on Earth. But I think there are many kinds of uncanny experiences that we have uh, in, in the world today, you know, I, I, I now live in British Columbia. We had a, a, an extreme weather event a couple of years ago called a, a heat dome uh, and, and, and hundreds of people died. Uh, millions of, of marine creatures died. Um, uh, but what was most uncanny about the heat dome is it was not our weather. It was like somebody else's weather coming to uh, a temperate rainforest. And so... I thought by using the uncanniness of having a doppelganger, you asked about my doppelganger, I, I've, I am perennially confused and conflated with another writer named Naomi Wolf, uh, uh, named Naomi, uh, named Naomi, Naomi Wolf. Um, and 
you know, having a, having that identity confusion is an extreme form of uncanniness because what becomes unfamiliar is you. You see people and hear people talking about you, but it's not you. It's very destabilizing. So I thought, well, this is an interesting technique. And she really is less the subject of the book than a literary technique to to get into these other kinds of of uncanny forces. Um, should I tell the bathroom story, Amy? Please. You really want me to do it? <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the first chapter begins telling the story um, where, actually, I was, I was in New York City um, uh, to be part of Occupy Wall Street. I was, I was uh, at a march through the financial district um, uh, at the height of Occupy Wall Street. And uh, like uh, other people at that march, uh, I needed to use a, a public restroom. And I was uh, I was in one of these, you know, skyscrapers and and I don't remember exactly which building. But while in the restroom, I overheard a couple of people talking about me being quite unkind. I must say, Amy, they were they were saying very, they were they were sort of drawling. Like, did you read that article by Naomi Klein? Oh, my God, she really doesn't understand our movement. She doesn't understand our demands. And I was sort of frozen in fear, but brought back all of all of my terrible high school memories. You know, these these mean girls were were talking about me. But as I listened, I realized, oh, they're not talking about me. They're talking about somebody else. So I, I, you know, I came out of the stall and I met one of their eyes and I said, words that I have had to say, unfortunately, too many times, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. Um, but, but in the end, that became quite fitting to me because, you know, I think when you, we overhear people speaking about us on social media, we essentially are just reading the graffiti on the, on, on, on the, on the bathroom wall, which is not healthy and we probably should stop doing that. So I, I think it's fitting that the first time I became aware of the identity confusion uh, uh, in the real world. It was it was actually literally in a bathroom. <laughs> and we, let's just say that this weekend is the 12th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Naomi, so it's I'd been like going to... on for some time. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, I'd like to just join Amy in uh, congratulating you on this book. I mean, I know that I'm not alone in thinking this, that when I read it, I realize that it's actually the book that needed uh, to be written. I mean, it's it's amazing the way you're simultaneously disclosive, funny, um, subtle, and so insightful about our present historical moment. So I want to ask about the reasons that you, it's the do- doppelganger effect uh, mm-hmm. that you identify as, of course, not just with N- Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf is almost yeah. like incidental to what you come to identify, mm-hmm. which is that you recognize in seeing your doppelganger, that you were also seeing, quote, in your words, a magnification of many undesirable aspects of our shared culture. So could you just enumerate or list what those undesirable aspects are, of which, I mean, you can select some because they're so numerous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it definitely wouldn't have been worth doing this if it if it if it, if it wasn't kind of a narrow aperture to you know use a film image that would allow us to see m- much larger forces at work. And I think we all know people who have changed dramatically in the past few years. Um, you know, who don't really seem like themselves. I, you know, I think it's less interesting that Naomi Wolf is a seemingly a doppelganger for me for a lot of to a lot of people's eyes. Um, then that she seems to be a doppelganger of her former self, right? That she was a prominent feminist. Um, she was involved in progressive movements. And now here she is on Steve Bannon's uh, a podcast 
in some cases, every single day, like there have been weeks where she has been a guest every single day that he has been broadcasting. I think probably Democracy Now! listeners would be surprised to learn that they published a book together. Um, they put out T-shirts together. So, she, you know, her role on Steve, in Steve Bannon's media sphere is almost uh, like a co-host more than a guest. She's a really important figure in this world. But part of the reason we don't know this has to do with this, uh, what I call the, the, the mirror world and the fact that while they see us, we have chosen for the most part not to see them. And I think that that's very dangerous because these are really important political movements. Steve Bannon is a is a very able political strategist. He got Donald Trump elected once and he fully intends to do it again. And part of Steve Bannon's strategy is that he is very good at looking at issues and people who have been abandoned by the Democratic Party or even by the left, people who have been mistreated, um, ejected and saying, come on over to this side, come on over to this side of the glass and we'll take a little bit of truth. You know, you use that quote that 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 there's always a little bit of truth mixed in and we'll mix it up with all of these dangerous lies. Um, But to me, as a lifelong leftist, what concerns me about that is that many of the issues that they are um, co-opting and twisting are issues that I think the left should be more vocal about. You know, I had one of my most you know, I'd say like a moment in my in the research where I was listening to hundreds of hours of Bannon's podcast where I would say I felt most destabilized was when I would hear Bannon um, cut together a montage, an audio montage and a video montage uh, um, of intros and outros of major cable news shows on CNN and MSNBC brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. And, you know, his point was to say, you can't trust these corporate media outlets because they are bought and paid for by the drug companies that are trying to get you vaccinated, right? Um, but for me, what was what was chilling about that was that it, that was a doppelganger of the kind of media education that I grew up in. You know, we all read Manufacturing Consent. We had these charts where we, and I mean, Amy, they sounded a little bit like you. They sounded like me. They sounded like Noam Chomsky, except through a warped mirror. And what worried me about that is it really reminded me that I don't think we're doing that kind of um, of, of systems-based media education anymore where we really are looking at these ownership structures. And if that doesn't happen, then it's going to be co-opted in the mirror world. So, you know, I guess, uh, Nermeen, thank you for your kind words about the book. I'm so glad that it resonated with you. It was a sort of a risk. Um, but I think maybe by being specific, you know, we're all thinking about the people in our lives and, and, and this phenomenon that's, that's uh, affected us all. I think w- when I look at people who have made this a similar political mi- migration from, from liberalism or leftism over to the Bannon-esque right, I think we often see um, some uh, economic forces at work. We, Naomi Wolf has has quadrupled her following because of this this uh, um, decision, this political decision of hers. Um, she's not the only one. You know, I'm, I'm sure people are thinking of other people. It's actually a really smart business move. Um, and and this is happening within an economic system that has monetized attention. Um, I, you know, people are trying to build their personal brands because they've been told that they're not going to get a job, that this is the only way they can survive in these roiling capitalist seas. And there, there are a lot of there's a lot of clicks over there. Um, so I think that's some of it. Um, you know, what are the other forces that get mag- magnified? Well, you know, this is a little tricky to say because, you know, I, I do write, I, you know, this I don't think it, this gives people a pass. Um, but 
But Wolf is one of these people who has experienced a lot of of shaming and uh, kind of pylons uh, on on left Twitter, liberal Twitter or X or whatever it's called. She's really been, I would say, Internet bullied. Um, People can say, okay, well, for good reason, she's made all of she's she's spread conspiracies. She's made major factual errors in her books. But I don't think that's necessarily a justification for for cruelty. Um, So I think that's something else that gets magnified, because I think when people have an experience that is very, very negative in left or liberal circles where they really get treated almost like they're 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 not human. And that's partly because they're performing themselves as a brand, which is saying, you know, hey, I'm out here. I'm a commodity. I'm a thing. And then people start thinking, well, if you're a thing, I can throw things at you and you won't bleed. Um, you know, I think that that's part of what is magnified here, and that becomes a justification for, I think, an unjustifiable political alliance with extremely dangerous figures who are building a network of far-right political parties who take issues like rightful suspicion of big pharma, rightful anger at big tech, rightful anger at the elites, and flip it to transphobia, xenophobia, racism. You know, and here I'm thinking about figures like Georgia Maloney, who is you know, a protege of Steve Bannon's. And Naomi, I mean, if you could if you could elaborate on on that point, I mean, one of the failures that you identify uh, is, for instance, uh, the, the Democratic Party or, or progressives generally not focusing on making, for instance, uh, different social media platforms more equitable, more mm-hmm. democratic, uh, but rather, you know, when people are deplatformed, including Naomi Wolf, kind of celebrating mm-hmm. their removal. And you say yeah. that believing that once they're deplatformed, they've effectively disappeared is the equivalent of saying that children, children who think that once they close their eyes, the world has disappeared. If you could elaborate on that. Yeah. So, I mean, like when I would when I would confess to, 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 to people I knew that I was working on this book, sometimes I would get this strange reaction, like, well, why would you give her attention? Um, and there was this sense that because she was no longer visible in the pages of the New York Times or on, you know, MSNBC or wherever, um, and because she had been deplatformed on, on, on social media that, or, or on the social media that we're on, um, that she just didn't exist. And, and, and there was this assumption that we, whoever we are, are are in control of the attention. And so if 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 the spigot gets turned off, then there's no more attention. But because I was following this, what I was seeing was that she had a much, much larger uh, um, a platform than probably she'd had since her star rose in the 1990s. And she was advising Al Gore on his presidential run in 2000. Uh, you know what what Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon can offer her um, is more than what a lot of liberal media outlets can offer. And she's been on, you know, uh, 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 Jordan Peterson's podcast. And she's also in these, you know, I, ca- I call it the mirror world because there's kind of a one-to-one replica of many of the, the social media platforms, the crowdfunding platforms. So she was kicked off Twitter. She immediately got an account on, on Getter. Um, uh, and, and Getter, they, they call themselves the Twitter killer. Um, so I think it is, really, really reckless to ignore this world because, you know, it's not like they're just, uh, you know, it's not like it's a hobby what they're doing there. As Steve Bannon says, the goal is to take power for the next hundred years. So not paying attention to this and not looking at what issues are getting traction there, I think is really reckless. In 2016, 
Steve Bannon successfully peeled away a portion of the Democratic Party base who had voted for Democrat after Democrat who promised them that they were going to renegotiate or cancel free trade deals that had gutted their communities and offshore jobs. And they didn't do it. Many of them signed more free trade deals. And Steve Bannon saw an opportunity. Uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's about whether or not he personally believes this is, uh, you know, an important issue or whether Trump did anything really meaningful in this regard. The issue is they picked up an issue that their opponents had abandoned and used it to political effect. And that is now happening with opposition to big tech, opposition to big pharma, even standing up for free speech, right? And so I think that there need to be, um, you know, and, and, and it's wildly hypocritical because they're the same people who are banning books. Uh, but to me, like, we can't control them. That We can control ourselves and whether or not we are doing a good enough job embodying our own principles. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that the more misinformation was being spread by the likes of Wolf and Bannon, the more people who see themselves as progressive started just getting into a reactive position where we're just defending the CDC. We're just defending what the government is saying. When in fact, the role of the left is to push for much more, right? Sure, yes, get vaccinated, wear a mask. But what about fighting for the right to indoor air quality for everybody? What about demanding that schools uh, have smaller classrooms, more outdoor education, more teacher, giving essential workers the raises instead of just the applause, um, the, the right to, I mean, th- there's, there, you know, or lifting the, the patents on the vaccines. And I know you, you covered this on Democracy Now! consistently, but I think if we're honest, it was the right that organized during the pandemic. You know, I live in Canada now, I'm back in Canada, and, you know, we had the trucker convoy that shut down Ottawa for three weeks. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get into much about the trucker convoy except to say that my, you know, one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, what had happened, what would have happened if there was a robust left that had shut down cities and demanded that before we got our fourth booster, everybody on this planet got their first COVID vaccine, um, you know, or made any of these other collective uh, demands about truly funding public health care, universal public health care uh, would have been a good response to the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to be a lot more ambitious and a lot less reactive to just what they're doing, the quote unquote, they. Naomi, very quickly before we break, we just have a minute. If you could explain, you mentioned the truck convoy. You mentioned two truck mm-hmm. convoys. What do you think principally, right. why it was that so important? What was misrepresented? Oh, it, that's a little, maybe it's a little bit tricky to explain quickly, but... Um, but seven months before the famous trucker convoy, uh, the one that you know made it on all, all, all the U.S. talk shows, um, and that was an anti, mainly an anti-vax event, um, there was a, a there was a convoy that was in in British Columbia that was in response to the unmarked graves that were con- whose presences were confirmed at first at. Uh, the, the former, the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School, and then, uh, more unmarked graves confirmed at other, uh, form, on the grounds of other former, uh, so-called residential schools. I say confirmed because the communities always knew, uh, that there were burial grounds on these, uh, geno- the, the, the grounds of these genocidal schools, um, but their presence was confirmed using ground penetrating radar. And there was such an outpouring of, of, uh, of solidarity uh, in the aftermath of that, that there was a, a convoy organized by truckers in British Columbia, uh, 
hundreds of trucks that went and drove in front of the, 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 for, the closed former residential school in Kamloops. It was called the We Stand in Solidarity Convoy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, it came from a place, as I say, and as they said, of solidarity, of, 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 of wanting to say that this is, uh, this atrocity, um, this genocide is not only an issue for First Nations to fight for justice, it should be everybody's business. Um, so it was striking that there was this kind of doppelganger trucker convoy seven months later. But what I say in the book is that some truckers went to both. And so what's interesting to me is the way doppelgangers stand in for the fact that human beings are complicated. Uh, you know, I think my own doppelganger is complicated. You know, she, I think she's done some very good things in her life and she's done some really damaging things. Most, that's true for most people. So I, what interests me as, as, as a political theorist is, you know, what are the systems that encourage the best parts of ourselves, that support that impulse towards solidarity and compassion, as opposed to light up the most individualistic parts of ourselves? Naomi Klein, her new book is out just this week. It's called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. We're back with her in a minute. Lost in the Citadel by Lil Nas X. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh, and we're spending the hour with Naomi Klein. Her new book is just out. It's called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Naomi, I wanted to talk to you about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, in mm. July, the Democratic presidential candidate spoke at a press event in New York City and claimed the COVID-19 vaccine is a genetically engineered bioweapon that may have been ethnically targeted to spare people who are Jewish, Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. So that's Robert Kennedy. Naomi, you wrote an article before these comments in The Guardian headlined, Beware, We Ignore Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Candidacy at Our Peril. Um, now, you 
write extensively uh, in this piece about his background. It was not just COVID-19 vaccines he was concerned about. He goes way back in his anti-vax um, attitudes and activism. Talk about the significance of this and what you continually say throughout the book in that we ignore these views at our own peril. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, in a way, uh, he is a doppelganger of his father and uncle, and he's sort of, it's sort of, I see it as a, a kind of a counterfeit politics. I, I'm sorry for RFK Jr. supporters uh, who are listening. Don't know how many there are. Um, I think that what he is doing is tapping into a, a lot of um, real uh, fears, angers, uh, you know, there are times when I listen to him when I'm, I can't help nodding along when he's talking about regulatory capture of, of, of government agencies, um, by the corporations they're supposed to be regulating. That's something I've covered for a long time. Um, you know, or when he's talking about the military industrial complex, I think it's really important. The reason why I call it, you know, a counterfeit politics is that although he is calling this out, if you look at what he's running on, um, you know, this is not Bernie. He is not actually running on a platform of of significant regulations that would address the crises that he is talking about. Um, it's kind of a libertarian platform. I mean, he ha- isn't even running on universal public health care. Um, you know, if you're worried about uh, if you're worried about big pharma and profiteering, you know, how about running on pharmacare that 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 we shouldn't be leaving life saving drugs to the market? But you'll never hear him say something like that. Um, you know, so I think to, for 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 leftists who are frustrated with the centrism of the Democrats, uh, it can seem like this is really an alternative. And I would really, really caution against it. Um, and, and look at what he is actually running on. Is he running on raising the minimum wage? And, and it, no, he's not. Um, he's tapping into these, uh, the, these real critiques um, and these real issues, like an inflated military budget, but then, you know, his position on Israel, for instance, is just more militarism. Same thing with Steve Bannon, by the way. You know, he talks a great game about the military industrial complex. He's absolutely obsessed with China and positioning the U.S. for, you know, the third world war with China. If you're a serious critic of the military industrial complex, you wouldn't be uh, as focused as Steve Bannon is on, 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 on China bashing. Um, so... Uh, you know, RFK, uh, obviously with that clip that you played is, uh, it was extraordinarily, um, disturbing, dangerous. A lot of conspiracy culture starts ending up in this, uh, kind of anti-Semitic territory, though it's the oldest conspiracy theory in the world. You know, what I make the, ar- I make the argument in the book that part of what we're dealing with, um, with the rise of conspiracy culture, and I call it conspiracy culture, not conspiracy theories, because the, the, the theories so wildly uh, um, contradict each other. They're, they're, it's just a posture of mistrust and just throwing wild theories at the wall. So one minute COVID is a bioweapon, perhaps, and the next minute it's just a cold, so don't even wear a mask. You really would need to choose if you had a theory between whether or not it was a bioweapon or whether or not it was a cold. If it were a bioweapon, presumably you would want to do pretty much anything you can not to be infected. Um, but they never attempt to resolve these glaring contradictions because the point of it is to throw up this kind of a, a, a distraction so that we aren't focused on the, the sort of what I would describe as kind of the conspiracies in plain view. The fact that the, that the pharmaceutical companies 
uh, um, turned COVID into this profit center. Uh, the fact that these, the, the, despite the fact that so the vaccine de- development was funded with public dollars, all the initial orders were were from the government. There are these outrageous patents on uh, on these vaccines, and they should never have been patented in the first place. Um, and I think we need to be really wary of, of being overly credulous. Uh, we know that there are real conspiracies in the world. You've been covering the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of Salvador Allende. Um, and new documents come out uh, every week that, that show us these you know, behind-the-scenes meetings. But if we look at that conspiracy, it's a good example. You know, what you see in the documents uh, about the U.S. destabilization campaign of Salvador Allende, it wasn't that there was a it wasn't that, you know, there was some nefarious goal about depopulating the earth or draining kids of adrenochrome or whatever the conspiracy culture is claiming. Um, it was to protect U.S. copper interests, you know, U.S. telecom interests. It was just capitalism doing its thing. Um, and sometimes it takes to a plot to do it, uh, is the way I put it in the book. But coming back to what I was saying earlier about the, the, an absence of basic political education, if people don't understand how capitalism works, if we don't understand that this is a system that is that is really an, uh, um, built to consolidate wealth, um, and it it will always have a massive underclass, and instead people have been told that capitalism is just you know Big Macs and freedom and rainbows and everybody getting what they deserve, then when that system fails them, they're going to be very vulnerable to somebody going, oh, it's all a plot by the Jews or you know whatever the conspiracy of the day is, and that's why doing that basic political education and economic edu- education is so critical because it's really our, uh, you know, it's our armor against this conspiracy culture. Well, Naomi, I mean, as you, uh, you I think you, you say in the book at some point, uh, the, the use of the term conspiracy culture is also because uh, one can't call it a conspiracy theory because it's a conspiracy with uh, no theory. So, um, you know, RFK and, and your own uh, doppelganger uh, are emblematic, really, of uh, the number, especially during the pandemic, the number of conspiracies that proliferated and, of course, spread so exponentially, so quickly, both because, of course, everybody on the planet, practically, who was able to do it was online. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if you could speak specifically, conspiracies have always existed. Sure. But talk sure. about the power of conspiracies now, just because of their sheer reach, combined with, as you say, uh, this uh, lack of education on a, a structure within which to understand what's being said. Absolutely. So I think you're absolutely right, Narmeen, that especially during times that are chaotic, uh, during times of disaster, there are often these wild conspiracy theories that emerge because they claim to make some sense of an event that seems senseless, especially when there's just a huge amount of loss. Um, So our minds reach for those kinds of easy explanations. I've seen that. I saw it after Hurricane Katrina. I saw it after the tsunamis. I saw saw it in Iraq. I've seen it again and again as a reporter. This is different. And what's different is the attention economy, because when all of this is playing out on platforms, private platforms owned by billionaires um, that have created uh, incentive structures, that mean that if you who if whoever puts out the most clickable content is going to get the most followers, is going to be able to turn those into subscriptions, be able to monetize them. It, it creates such a huge in, incentive structure to be that person first out of the gate, making the wildest claim that you possibly can. So that, you know, I would put conspira- conspiracy culture 
within the framework of the disaster capitalism complex that we have talked about before, um, you know, we've seen in the aftermath of disasters that these players move in and just attempt to profit from disasters. Conspiracy hucksters and influencers are part of the disaster capitalism complex, but it gets very confusing because often what they're talking about is other people (laughs) profiting off of disaster. Uh, So, it's a mirror world. It's trippy. Um, and so you've got to get a little bit trippy to try to, to map it. I, and you wanna, I want to ask you, first of all, like what, you know, before we end, what you, uh, you know, the main conclusions of, of the book are. But I, I'd also like to, to, to read, I mean, your, your own conclusion, one of the things that you say. Ultimately, it's almost as if you express gratitude towards Naomi Wolf because what uh, of the reflection, the interest in her and what it revealed, uh, uh, not just about our present moment, but also uh, uh, yourself uh, within this social media world. And and at the end, you you quote John Berger, who you say taught you a long time ago that calm itself is a form of resistance. So, first of all, what should people take away, the main takeaway from the book? And and that point itself, calm is a form of resistance. How is one to attain that calm? Mm. Well, I think maps help, right? And this is a, a very first uh, it's it's a it's a first draft of a map of 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 uh, the, coast, the post-COVID world, um, you know, it's, it's just through one person's eyes and, and, and it's mapping as collective work. So it's been really great to be out here talking to people, reading articles that people have written, uh, tell, you know, adding to it and adding layers. So I think we're sense-making. We're making sense of the way we have changed, our, the way our world has changed. Um, but I think the big takeaway from the book is all of this is about not seeing, you know, whether we are creating doppelgangers of ourselves online and performing perfected versions. It, that's a way of, of distracting ourselves from the weight of our political moment. You know, listening to your, your headlines, uh, Amy and Nermeen, you know, to quote Antonio Gutierrez, it's an atlas of human suffering. It's so hard to look at the reality that we are in right now with the overlay of, of endless wars and climate disasters and massive inequality. Um, and so whether we're making up fantastical conspiracy theories or getting lost in our own reflections, it's all about not looking at that sort of that reality that is only bearable if we get outside of our own heads and, and collectively organize it uh, and, you know, rebuild our social movements so that they can offer people material improvements to their lives. That's the only way, you know, we fight these surging conspiracies. It's not going to be fact checkers or content moderators. It's it's going to be a robust left. And I feel I can say that on democracy now. And we just have a minute, but let's end where we started with that term doppelganger and what more you want to say about it. And if Naomi Wolf has responded. You know, it's interesting. She 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 posted something this morning, actually, or maybe it was yesterday, um, casting this as a sort of some sort of a like my work as some sort of being part of a, a plot to attack her, um, which isn't surprising, you know. And she's using it to 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 um, well, okay. I think that this must be very hard for her, is what I would say. Um, and you know, I have really tried to. Uh, reiterate that she is a case study, an interesting one, but this is not about her. Um, I personally think she's been treated quite cruelly. Uh, I'm not interested in, um, in in adding to that. Um, you know, I do think that we need to hold one another accountable 
but that doesn't mean that we have a right to be cruel. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that if she were to actually read the book, she would see uh, that it isn't perhaps the way it's been portrayed as being like, you know, a, a book length attack on her. It certainly isn't. You know, doppelganger stories are always ways We have to leave it there, Naomi. Of... Um, <laughs> Naomi Klein, author of Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.